Okay, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing again. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this time that you have granted your people to gather around the teaching of the word of Christ, the gospel, to hear about who he is and what he has done to save his people from their sins, which he already accomplished, the testimony that we now bear by the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the scriptures. Lord, may you help us this morning to hear from you. Help me to speak that which is true and faithful and hear, help your people also to hear that which is true and faithful to the praise of your glory and to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We honor you, glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, one and all, everybody who is joining us. It's a wonderful Sunday, January, cold in Ohio. <laughs> we are going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8 this morning. I hope everybody can hear me. Romans 8, beginning at verse 1 to 10. Our last message in this series was no condemnation for those in Christ. And we're going to be piggybacking on that and adding more meat to the conversation as God has given us understanding. Romans 8, 1 to 10. The apostle by the Holy Spirit recorded and said, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And that is the word of the Lord. And for title, we only have one. The righteous requirement of the law. The righteous requirement of the law. The gospel of Jesus Christ 
is indeed the most wonderful news there is. But only if we hear it in the context of the issues that have necessitated it, that is, the things that form its pillars. We have to understand the pillars of the gospel, otherwise it ceases to be the gospel. And to the extent or level to which we diminish the issues surrounding sin and who God is, even the matter of the law, to that level, the gospel is also reduced in its claims and declarations. So we do have a lot of things to dissect and connect this morning so that by God's grace, um, we may have an understanding of God's arguments. God has to give us the teaching of his arguments and if we should agree with him, it's only because he's causing us to agree with him. And only God's arguments really matter everything said. And he must help us. <laughs> Otherwise, our exercise is unprofitable. And I'm here, I believe God has raised me to declare his arguments about certain issues, certain matters that are of concern to him and those things respect his eternal purpose in Christ Jesus, his ways, his ways of doing things and what he has done in Christ. But I cannot preach anyone into God's grace. God's grace by design is an eternal decree. And so there is nothing that I can do or anyone can do as a human being or as a preacher to make that grace available to anybody. The preaching of the gospel is not making grace available. God has already made it available and we are just here to declare it. And the sheep who are the recipients of this grace, who rejoice when they hear that message, they will agree with God. They will confess Christ. They will have faith and repentance because God will grant it to them. Okay. So Apostle Paul has said this in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that is a most wonderful statement. It is a mouthful statement, because if you are a sinner like me, this is what you want to hear and always want to hear. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because we are worthy of condemnation. By nature, we are worthy of 
condemnation. But God says, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that to say, in Christ Jesus, there are some people identified as those who are in Christ, who are justified from all their sins. In other words, those that shall not ever be judged for any of their sins, those that shall not ever need to explain why they did this and that sin. And it is they that the Holy Spirit comes and says, those who are in Christ. And it follows that to be in Christ is the condition that alone causes one to be bypassed by God's condemnation. The church world is notoriously bad at not advancing God's arguments when it comes to the gospel. They are not teaching the gospel. And you need to learn to pay attention to every line that the preacher is saying. Otherwise, you're going to get deceived. Pay attention to every message. Pay attention to what is being said, the words that are being used, and what is not being said. God is saying there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And it follows that to be in Christ is the condition that alone causes one to be bypassed by God's condemnation. To be in Christ, that alone is the condition. In other words, Christ Jesus is the condition for the justification of a sinner. Christ alone is the condition for the justification of a sinner. And this has nothing to do with your morality. This is a legal placement. To be in Christ is a legal placement. God has put you in Christ. He has legally put you to be identified with Christ and everything that Christ is and has done. Your identity is in Christ. And because of that, there's no condemnation. But the question that we have to ask is, how does one get into Christ? Can one pray their way into Christ, decide themselves into non-condemnation? Can they work themselves into Christ by law-keeping? No, they cannot. One can only be in Christ by God's decree. And his first decree is election. Election is God's first decree that put you in Christ. And then by the redemption. The redemption of Christ. And if it is of God's grace, and if it is of election, I meant to say, and if it is of 
God's election to be in Christ, then it can only be of grace. It can't be based on anything that God saw or foresaw about a particular person, whether good or bad. Whether a person was going to, in time, choose Jesus and make a decision. That would be conditional election and that won't be true. If God chooses, it has to be based on himself. It pleased him to do so. It pleased him not to impute the sins of some people to them. And if that is the case, then election was from before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1 rightly teaches. If God chose people based on anything that they did, whatever it is, you name it, whatever it is, then all of salvation would not be of grace. And if salvation was not of grace, we would never hear the end of that song. <laughs> People would be hoarding salvation to themselves and boasting about it. But there are a lot of moving parts in this matter or to this matter of the gospel. There's a lot of moving parts. So we cannot take one thing and run away with it and divorce the other matters that surround the story of our salvation. And for us to have a better understanding of where this is coming from, we have to go back to Apostle Paul. But he is the one making the arguments by the Holy Spirit. Where is Paul coming from? How did we get to Romans 8 verse 1? We got there because Paul is laboring a simple point. That salvation is by grace alone. You could have saved us all these other chapters and ended in verse 1 of Romans 1. <laughs> and said, oh, by the way, salvation is of grace alone. Let's stop here. Let's go home. But Paul is laboring a point. He must work the complexity of the details of all the moving paths and put them in their proper perspective. Paul is coming from despairing in Romans 7. Right? He's in Romans 7. And if you want, you can go back to Romans 1. Because Romans 8 is not divorced from everything that Paul has already discussed from Romans 1. So in Romans 7, Paul used himself as an exhibit of how the law could not help the sinner. Paul had no problem with the law. He did not say the law was evil. He said the law is good, holy, and the commandment righteous. It's holy, it's righteous, it's good. But there was a problem. 
So this is the problem that I have with a lot of people who say you're still under the law. They do not want to develop all the arguments around the matter. They say, oh, you're still under the law because the commandment is holy and good. No, that's not the argument that was given. Paul had not understood the function of the law before his conversion. He had not understood the function of the law. As many in our day who come and say the law is the rule of life for the redeemed. And many have been hoodwinked by their sin and have failed to understand the problem with the goodness of the law and think it is something that is within their tentacles to reach. But Paul begged to differ and said, Romans 7, let's go to Romans 7, 7 to 11. In Paul's discussion of his experience with the law as a sinner, what shall we say then, verse 7 of Romans 7, is the lost sin that would naturally be the conclusion of someone who is not understanding the arguments. Is the lost sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, verse 8, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. I thought I was righteous. I thought I was good. I thought it was good between me and God. I felt alive before I understood the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. So why do you people still want to be under the law? Paul clearly says the commandment, which I thought was to bring life, I found to bring death. (laughs) I found it brought my condemnation. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. Paul did not say here in this text or anywhere in his writing that the law was for sanctification. It's nowhere taught in the Bible. He did not say the law helps the sinner to get better. He argues for the very opposite thing. He said the law was given with the purpose of making a discovery and to expose whatever it discovers. To expose the hidden sin, to make a spiritual x-ray of my sin. To cast light on the heart and expose the evil that is in it not to make you better. The Lord does not have anything to use to make you better. It is the kind of doctor that diagnoses disease but never gives a prescription. He said, Apostle Paul, I did not know that I was a covetous man, a wicked man. 
an evil man until the law came and said, Thou shalt not covet. Paul thought he was just admiring and showing appreciation for his neighbor's truck <laughs> or his neighbor's new cell phone, as it were, in our present time. Like, oh, you have an iPhone 15 Pro Max. It looks nice, Paul. <laughs> But as the commandment came to the understanding of his consciousness, as God would give him conviction of that, he quickly learned that this was more than an appreciation of the good things of life. Sin took advantage of the commandment and caused all men of evil desire in him so he just was not coveting the one thing he found himself coveting a whole lot more other things and Paul here is saying if we could bring it to where we are Paul is saying going to the store going to Best Buy and admiring those beautiful TVs in there can get you condemned yeah you're thinking, man, if I just had money to take this home, so what would you do if you did not have the money? Or if you had the opportunity, you would steal. If nobody would see you, you would steal them. So the law that he thought would and could tame things and make him a better man, a better person, turned out to be a nightmare. It made things worse for him. Sin revived. In other words, the otherwise poor signal of sin that was seemingly lying law, like really lying law, yeah, seemingly silent, undiscovered to him caused him to have a false sense of goodness and righteousness and obedience to the law. He thought he was righteous because his sin had not yet been discovered to him. But when the law came, that seemingly law signal of sin was revived. The sin that was lying dormant in him, like you have the dormant volcanoes, they go quiet for a number of years or even decades, and then boom, they show up, right? They erupt. That's what happened with Paul. The law came, and then there was this eruption. Sin was amplified. Sin was given power. Sin was re resurrected and Paul said, I died. <laughs> In other words, I felt so condemned. So Paul is making a mathematical treatment of sin and law. He's building the proper relationship that exists between sin and law. And he is proving his equation and helping someone to do the math. Like one plus one equals two. And he is saying, 
The power of sin is in the law. Therefore, when you add law to sin, this is how the math is going to add up. It always produces death. Because the wages of sin is death. Law plus sin always gives you death, never life. So do not let anyone deceive you by their wisdom, which is the wisdom of the world anyway. Deceive you by their piety, because the people who come and try to put you under the law, they seem to claim some level of righteousness. They want to show themselves as very obedient people. Yeah? So do not be deceived by false piety. It does not end well. Sin will always deceive to think that the law is doable. A sinner does not need the law. Let me tell you the honest truth, and it will be offensive to a lot of people who do not understand this matter. A sinner does not need the law. A sinner needs grace. A sinner needs grace because the law can only condemn them. We are not talking about the law as in observing the speed limit. We are talking the law of God. The law of God will always condemn a sinner. It will. And it does. Apart from Christ. So Paul discovered that he was in a very tight situation. He was in a conundrum. And there was no way out. The goodness of the law could not be answered by his own sinfulness. Paul did try. If you were a decent teacher, you could give him a C grade for trying. But he even thought that his righteousness before the law was an A+. (laughs) He thought he was blameless. But that was before he understood the law. That's the testimony of Philippians chapter 3. But the law does not respect trying. Whatever people are saying is law keeping is just trying. And I'm here to say the law does not respect trying. It does not respect your best effort. It only respects perfection. And that is why you need Jesus So through the commandment of the law, Paul says sin became exceedingly sinful. In other words, the law amplifies sin. It increases the transgression. It does not tame the transgression. And through this, he discovered that he was carnal. He was fleshly. He was sold as a slave to sin. In other words, enslaved to sin and doing sin's bidding and under its bondage and condemnation and he had no power to do otherwise. No matter how much the law said to him, don't do this, do this, he discovered that he had no power to give what the law was asking of him. And so his conclusion of many conclusions was 
verse 18 to 21 of Romans 7. For I know, for I know that in me, (laughs) this is your own testimony, it doesn't matter what other people are saying, this you must know for yourself, for I know that in me, the other person may be righteous, leave them alone, but for me, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, so this is his evidence. The willing is present with me, the willingness to do good, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. I just do not have the strength to do that which is good, For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do that I practice. So I find myself always doing the very opposite of the very good things. Now, if I do what I will not, what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it. But sin that was in me, Paul is not saying it wasn't him doing it. He is saying there was another underlying principle that had more power in him, causing him to not do what he willed to do. So verse 21, I find then a law, a principle, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. And this is God's truth. And if anyone is or says they have graduated from this testimony, I can show you a person who is unregenerate and is deceived. None can graduate from that statement of verse 21, apart from glorification. There are no number of years of sanctification that will cause you to graduate from verse 21. There are no number of years, 20 million years, 100 trillion years, you still find yourself in verse 21. Sinlessness is impossible until glorification, as I said. You have to be glorified. So Paul is laboring this point in this section of Romans that he may teach the Jew particularly because they are in the audience of the conversation that there was and there is no hope for them or anyone in the law. Okay? So there's someone who has asked these matters of the law. That's why Paul is giving this treatment. Someone in the audience, I'm sure, 
had called him out on his gospel of grace alone and said, what about the law, you antinomian? (laughs) You need to repent. The law was given by God with his own fingers. You cannot come and talk about the law that way. And that is the conversation. But the Holy Spirit said to make things straight in this matter of law and the sinner. In other words, the Jew who had been under the law for the longest time had not benefited or had not been benefited by the law before God and had also not understood why God gave the law. The Jews did not understand that. The law had not made them better people and had not made them acceptable. They still had to go to the beginning of the line and join the rest of the sinful Romans, one country, Gentiles, who were just kicking it, hopeless and without God. And Paul says, Jew and Gentile, guess what? They are both under sin. (laughs) They are in the same WhatsApp group. And the law cannot and could not help either one. The Gentile never cared for the law. The Jew, on the other hand, they cared or at least they thought they cared. But they were deceived. They were deceived by their sin as to what the law actually was saying. So what is the conclusion of the matter? The conclusion is not that the law is good, is spiritual, is righteous and good. Yes, that's true. So go and do it. That was not the conclusion of the matter. The issue here is not the righteousness or the unrighteousness of the law. That's not what is being debated. That is already given. And someone, for lack of understanding, may have suggested that the law is evil by reason of its relationship with sin. But they were mistaken. Again, they did not understand God's arguments. Paul has said all those things to come to this point. Because this was God's intention in the giving of the law. And Paul's whole point is to bring hopelessness to the sinner and death by something that is good That was always God's intention of giving the law to make the sinner guilty and hopeless and imprison them so that if they should ever get out of prison, it would only be by something that God alone did. That was the function of the law. 
to bring about death through sin, make sinners hopeless, shut them up to hopelessness, and only to be set free by the appearance of Christ. Romans 7, 24. This is what God want or met with sin and law. Because if the law came from God, then sin did not happen by accident. It's part of the recipe of making sinners guilty. It's God's recipe. Sin and law are God's recipe to produce death. If you deny that sin was by God's ordination, then you don't know what you're talking about. Don't try to clean up God. God was never dirty. He doesn't need to be cleaned up. <laughs> but God's point is this. It's Romans 7.24. This way he wants every person to come and say, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? That's the proper understanding of the law. All wretched men that I am. Not all how beautiful I am. Or how handsome I am. No. Not even all wretched men or women that I used to be. Because a lot of people come and say, Oh, I used to be bad when I used to go party all night and drink. But now, oh man, I am better. No, you're not better. All wretched man or woman that I am, and see that is in the present continuous tense, not what I used to be, but that I am. And this is Apostle Paul writing as the apostle of Jesus Christ. He did not write Romans when he was under the law. He had already been brought to the knowledge of Christ. He wrote it as the apostle of the gospel and said, Oh, wretched man that I am, I am a sinful man still. And in this state of sinfulness, who shall deliver me from this body of death? In other words, the matter that the law has exposed to me in respect of my sin needs a solution that cannot be found in the law. Paul sees that he is trapped in this body and he called it the body of death. In other words, the body of sin and condemnation. The body that does not have life in itself or righteousness. And the law had nothing to give him by way of help. It could only leave him trapped in this body of death 
as it were in a coffin, as it were buried, no way out, dead ended, zero options. And God's point being, none can talk Christ. And none can talk the sufficiency of grace alone. And Christ alone, unless they have dead ended in self-salvation and discovered that there is nothing in them but this body of death. And in this state of condemnation, in this state of understanding, the question is not, what shall I do to be saved? Because there's nothing that one who is in this body of death can do to be saved. If they should be delivered from this body, from its condemnation, they must be asked a different question. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And this is the conversation that Jesus had with the lawyer in the story of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan whom we identified correctly in our teaching as the Lord Jesus. The lawyer came asking Jesus what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. He wanted to do something, not knowing that he was this body of death. As Jesus would later explain to him and showing him through the law. But the man was adamant. He thought he still had a few ounces of strength to give something to the law. And so Jesus wanted to show him that he had nothing to give to the law. And that he had nothing that he could do to inherit internal life. And so he gave him the story of the man who was on a journey. And he was beaten by robbers. And he was stripped of everything that he had and left for dead. And then it so happened that there was a priest and a Levite who were passing by. They saw the man and they passed by on the other side. And the testimony being, these are representatives of the law of which this man, the lawyer, thought he had life or could get life by doing it. But Jesus says, no, the Levite and the priests, they pass by this man who was helpless because the law cannot help one who is a sinner. And the testimony of the two was a testimony of the law because by the law, by two witnesses, a matter is established. So Jesus was kind of doing a repetition to establish the truth that the law cannot help one who has been beat down by sin. The man who was lying down had been beaten and stripped naked of righteousness. He had nothing. And if he should leave, there had to be a man on a mission. The Samaritan 
And this man, this man was on a journey and he passed by. He saw the man, he had compassion. And he took the man. He nursed his wounds, put him on his donkey and took him to the inn, took care of him, paid two denarii as a down payment for him and said to the innkeeper, if there's anything else that you need beyond what I've paid, you put it to my account. Because for one who is in this body of death, whatever issues they have, have to be put to the good Samaritan. They have to be put to the account of the one man, the one gracious man who is Christ Jesus, who shall deliver me from this body of death. And that to say the problem that sin and law present cannot be answered or solved by a list of things to do. Paul is not asking what other things he can do. He has already despaired of doing. He wants another person who is not himself. Give me a who person who can deliver me, who has power to deliver me from where I am. Who is it who is able to deliver a sinner from this body of death? In other words, who is able to give the law what it requires of me that I may live, that I may escape of this condemnation? And Paul comes and answers his own question and says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He has found the solution to all his laboring in Romans 7. And Paul has crafted the conversation about law and sin not as a discussion of the believer's ongoing day-to-day struggle with sin necessarily. Paul is not discussing sanctification because I hear people say, oh, go to Romans 7. Paul was describing his day-to-day struggle with sin in his sanctification. No, that's not the point. His primary point was to craft the matter of sin and law to the despair of anyone who trusted or who wants to trust in their law keeping. That's the point. It's true that the sinner is going to struggle as Paul described, but his point is to bring despair. And having done that, to find the solution not in their doing, but in the person who is the who, and saying, I thank God for Jesus Christ. And that was his gospel. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Why, Paul? Why are you thanking God? Because through Jesus Christ, God has revealed and given the solution to all the problems of sin, law, death, and condemnation. But what is so good about this Jesus 
what is so good about this God-given solution in Christ? What is it that Paul has found in Christ for which he is thanking God? What is it? Was it that Christ was feeding people for free and giving them the five loaves and the fishes? No, this is what Paul found in Christ, verse 1 of Romans 8, there's therefore now <laughs> no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. There is therefore now now he's speaking to time and is very purposeful. Now, in this present time, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And now is very important and very sweet to anyone who is a serial sinner and a lawbreaker. Because as you sin and continue to sin, Romans 1 does not change. Now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The advent of Jesus has brought this solution, this pronouncement on me and everyone who believes, no condemnation. And that is a sentence of judgment. No condemnation is a pronouncement of vindication from all sin. Whatever your experience is, in the context of Romans 7 struggle, the end of it is no condemnation for all those things. Though you may experience Romans 7 or Romans 1 country or Romans 2 or 3, if you are in Christ, you do not come under the condemnation of that experience. And the reason and only reason is that you are in Christ, not that you repented, not that you have become sorrowful of your sin, because those things do not answer to the issue that has been presented. Not that we have become faithful people, we have become obedient people, or people who claim to love God, people who go to church, people who give money to the church, none of that is the reason why there's no condemnation. The operative expression is in Christ. <laughs> in Christ. But there's more to the understanding. Those who are not under condemnation in Christ Are they who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit? 
Let us work that for a minute. Those who are not under condemnation are those who walk according to the Spirit. Paul is not introducing another condition that a sinner missed for them to be in Christ or for them to not be under condemnation. Rather, listen carefully, he is describing the nature of those that are not under condemnation. He is saying, those not under condemnation are they who walk not according to the flesh. But the question then is, what is to walk according to the flesh? This is not and cannot be a moral category as many would have it or as many would want to read into it. Because Paul has just finished describing his many moral failures in Romans 7 (laughs) and also in Romans 3, the beginning of Romans 3. Non-righteous, right? So those who walk according to the flesh are they who continue to seek to remove their condemnation by their law-keeping or by anything that they do? Thus, those who walk according to the Spirit are not the morally upright people either. Morality is not what is deciding this matter. Those who walk according to the Spirit are those who walk without the sentence of condemnation on them by reason of being in Christ. Therefore, walking according to the Spirit is not a moral category, but a gospel category. It is a faith category describing those who are in Christ, who are the believing in Christ, who are the redeemed and justified in Christ. Let's keep working this for more clarity. Verse 2 again, Romans 8. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So two laws have been presented here that are also in keeping with the two categories of walking. Those who walk according to the flesh and those who walk according to the spirit. And with that, we have two principles. And Paul said, the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free, has set me free 
from condemnation from all the things that I described. And this law of the spirit of life in Christ is not a law of doing. It is the law of doing nothing. It is the law of rest. It is the law of what God did in Christ. And this is the law of life. And this alone sets a sinner free. Free from the law of sin and death. So the law of sin and death is the law of condemnation. The condemnation that Moses brings. And you could also rightly say it is the condemnation that came with Adam. Why? Because the law goes hand in hand with Adam in bringing the same outcome of sin, death, and condemnation. So if you were grouping things together, Adam would go together with the law, with the flesh, with sin, with death, with condemnation. That is one category. If one has been set free from the law of sin and death, it means God has moved them from that category into another category. There's been a transfer of categories, a change of categories, and they cannot go back and try to labor again after they've been set free from Egypt. So Egypt and this slavery would also be under the same category. Hagar and Ishmael would also come under the same category. So it is madness, it is hardness of heart to come and say, oh, there are some sovereign grace people who do not want to be under the law. <laughs> no, we are not under the law for these very things that we are describing and discussing. Verse 3 of Romans 8, for what the law could not do. For what the law could not do. In that it was weak through the flesh. What the law could not do. And that tells us that the law of sin and death. That Paul just mentioned in the previous verse. Was in reference to the law of Moses. Specifically. And he says. This law could not do something for the sinner. Something that the sinner desperately needed to be done for them. A sinner only needs to be justified from their sin and everything is well with them. And that the law cannot do. As long as the sinner stands in Adam, the law cannot help a sinner as to be justified, as to justify them. And the writer of Hebrews says the very same thing on this point that the law made nothing perfect. That's Hebrews 7:19. The law made nothing perfect. Didn't justify, didn't 
McHawley and Peter say the same argument differently in the book of Acts, Acts 13, 38 and 39, Acts 13, 38 to 39. Peter said, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, this who man, <laughs> through this man called Jesus, this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, in other words, the justification of a sinner, the salvation of a sinner, the deliverance of a sinner from this body of death through this man, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And Peter was not saying your faith is the basis of your justification. He is saying if you believe, that's evidence that you have been justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And the Holy Spirit says, from all things. Because in the matter of justification, people do not want to talk about justification from all things. They want justification from some things. And that's why the Roman Catholics come with purgatory because their Christ did not justify the people from all things. So they have to go and finish off the purging of the remainder of their sin in purgatory, which is false teaching. By this man, we have been justified from all things. So if the law could not justify you, then it could only mean that it was a liability. The law was made weak, Paul says, because of the flesh, because of our sinful flesh, because the law and sin cannot work the righteousness of God. It's a forbidden marriage. It's a forbidden combination. If you try to unlock something that is logged and you don't put in the correct combination, you can never unlock it. When you have sin and law together, that's a forbidden combination when it comes to righteousness. You cannot lock, you cannot unlock life and righteousness by your obedience to the law. I don't know if someone is hearing me somewhere. The law has no power to redeem a sinner from itself. It is nothing to give itself that it may be satisfied. The law has nothing of that kind. 
And Saul, God had to bring forth what he always intended to do in respect of justifying sinners. God did what the law could not do. God did. How? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Look at that play of words. The law could not, but God did. James could not, but God did. Sean could not, but God did. That's essentially what that is saying. How did God solve this problem of sin and law? He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And the point being, this son did not have a weakness of the flesh as did the rest of humanity, hence the language of likeness. It is suggesting the sinless humanity of Christ. He was made like unto us, but without sin. And he came this way as the God-man with a mission for a purpose. The mission of Christ is described right there in that line on account of sin. This is why Jesus showed up. He did not show up to give people houses and give them money. Christ came on account of sin because of sin to do what? To condemn sin in the flesh, to make an end of the condemnation of sin on his people. So, as the law cannot work the righteousness of God, uh, is what I meant to say, sorry. So, as Law and sin condemned us. Who are the wretched? The sinless son of God came and condemned the very sin in the flesh by his righteousness and death on the cross. The sin that was in our flesh, not his flesh, because he had none, I want you to pay attention to what Paul is doing in his arguments. He presented to us the law of sin and death and its condemnation. So sin and law, they work together to condemn. But when the son came, he also brought a condemnation. But it was a condemnation of the very thing that condemned us. That's when Christ came. Sin and its condemnation were condemned in the now time that the Son of God appeared to condemn it because the 
means of condemning sin was more than just his appearance, it was his death on the cross. That is why Paul now is important because the removal and the condemnation of sin happened on Mount Calvary. So why did God send his son this way and had him condemn sin in the flesh? Could he not just have justified a people to himself and brought them to heaven without Christ coming, just say, okay, I love you all, come to heaven. Could he just not have done so? No, he could not. His nature would not allow it. There was some requirement, some stipulation that needed to be met, to be fulfilled for all who are said to be in Christ. There was a requirement. Number one, Christ had to be the one to come and condemn sin in the flesh and to remove the condemnation that, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So there was a righteous requirement of the law that needed to be fulfilled in us. A righteous requirement that had to be honored to God's satisfaction on our behalf by giving the law what the law required or what God required of us through the law as he stipulated in the law that he may be the just and justifier of those sinners who come to him by Christ Jesus. And on this point, Jesus was not made righteous by the law. The law proved that he was righteous. The law did not make Jesus righteous. The law does not make God righteous. The law only proves that he is righteous. But the law had a righteous requirement. And it was God's righteous requirement, as I said, necessitated by his own holiness and righteousness. And what did the law say? This is what the law said, Galatians 3, 10, and that's coming from Deuteronomy 26, 27. Galatians 3, 10. You hear someone say, I heard someone say to me, oh, you're talking too much about the law. <laughs> of course, I have to talk about the law. But that testimony runs from Genesis 1 all the way. 
Galatians 3.10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written. Blessed is everyone who does not continue. <laughs> no. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. I'm going to really push this one so that you understand what is being said in connection with Romans 8. The Lord demanded and demands that one continue. Continue. Because continue is absent in a lot of what people say about law keeping. The law says you must continue to do all things which are written in the book of the law. You must continue to do them and you must continue to do all things that are written in it, not some things that are convenient to you, and not talk about the law only when you think Sean is not doing some of the things that you think he are doing. You must continue in all things that are written in the book of the law, and if not, death is the result, which is condemnation. So forget those who claim they are doing the law. They are not telling the truth on the law. And they are not telling the truth on Christ either. And if one has failed to give the law the perfection it requires, a curse is upon them. So Galatians 3.10 is saying perfection is what the law demands of a sinner. And the case that the Bible is saying is not getting a job. It's saying not getting a job or not not getting a job, whatever. Or someone will say, oh, I've been trying to get married and it has not been working on me. I think I have a curse. <laughs> this is not saying bad luck. The curse that the law pronounces is more than not finding a job. <laughs> it is saying God's eternal condemnation. So if you do not give the law its perfection, you are under the curse of condemnation, God's condemnation, not the condemnation of the person whom you think may have cast a spell on you. So the law has a righteous requirement that has a side A and B. Hear me clearly. The law has a righteous requirement that is side A and B like a vinyl record. On side A, if perfection is not given, then side B kicks in. The curse is on side B. Because the soul that sins, the soul that breaks the law must die. That's the curse. Must be condemned. 
So the law thus demands not just perfection, but death as its righteous requirement on all those who have fallen short of its perfection. And Christ comes and he fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law because he was made a debtor to the whole law. Because that's what Galatians says. Everyone who comes under the law becomes a debtor to the whole law, which is in keeping with Galatians 3.10. And so because he was made a debtor to the whole law, he became a curse for us. As it is written, curse is everyone who is hung on a tree. Verse 5 of Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Who are those who live according to the, to the flesh? It is they who walk according to the flesh. It is they who are still under the law of sin and death. It is they who are not in Christ. It is they for whom the righteousness the righteous requirement of the law has not been fulfilled. It is they who are under God's curse and condemnation. And these, Paul says, set their minds on the things of the flesh. So what are the things of the flesh? is trying to attain righteousness by their own works of obedience to the law. Remember, the law and flesh go together. Those in the flesh have confidence in the flesh. That is why Paul, in his own testimony in Philippians 3, he says, we are those who have no confidence in the flesh. So setting your mind on the things of the flesh is setting your mind on your own obedience to the law. A true sinner taught and born of God does not talk about their own obedience to the law because they know they have none. (laughs) So a contrast has been made There are those who live according to the Spirit or walk according to the Spirit and by extension, they set their mind on the things of the Spirit. What are the things of the Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit testify of? The Holy Spirit testifies of those things that were freely given us. The Holy Spirit testifies of Christ. And Paul says in Colossians 3, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and in that death, in union with Christ, 
you have been translated to the life of Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Okay? So the things of the Spirit are heavenly things. They're heavenly realities as God has revealed them to us in Christ. Those are the things of the Spirit. Verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. To be carnally minded is death, is condemnation. I need to emphasize again that to be carnally minded means to want to approach God based on one's own obedience. It is another way to say this from Romans 7, 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit unto death. So to remain, so to be carnally minded is to remain under the law and that can only bear fruit unto death because of the relationship between sin and law. Okay, let me make some qualifying statements. Those that are carnally minded are not necessarily worse sinners in morality than those who walk according to the Spirit. This is a very important distinction. Because Paul has already said, as far as sin is concerned, none is righteous. There's none who does good. There's none who understands or have become unprofitable. And that to say, one can be very moral and yet be carnally minded. As the moralist who was condemned in Romans 2, we did a message on the condemnation of the moralist, or as was the Pharisee who was praying to himself in the temple, he was carnally minded, and yet he, in the look of things, he was a very decent guy. He was seemingly a very morally upright person, and yet he came under this group of those who walk according to the flesh. Okay? So the moralist condemns in others the very things that they are guilty of doing. <laughs> Romans 2, 1, just for confirmation of that truth. Paul said, therefore, you are inexcusable. O man, whoever, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. You who judge practice the same things. The text collector, on the other hand, who came and talked about his own shortcomings, his own sin before God, was spiritually minded. And that is why his testimony was agreeable with Jesus. Jesus accepted his testimony because he was spiritually minded. And you see as testimony that a lot of the so-called highly moral people are also gospel haters. 
And that is the carnality that Paul is discussing. And I thought I would just give a little bit more attention to it to make the distinction. But Paul says to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And to be spiritually minded is not saying I do not believe in Jesus, but I am spiritual. (laughs) But there are a lot of people who claim that a lot. Oh, I don't go to church. I don't believe in Jesus, but I am spiritual. The Holy Spirit does not agree with that testimony. He says that is carnality, that is death. To be spiritually minded is life and peace because of the life of Christ and the peace that is in the blood of the cross. Verse 7, we finish in verse 10. Verse 7 of Romans 8, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It is the mind that has not been taught by God. It is the unregenerate mind. This is a statement of fact. All unregenerate people are naturally opposed to God. That is the mind of everyone, unfortunately, both the elect and non-elect. But the story of the elect does not remain the same, as the elect are not condemned for their enmity against God, or they are not submitting to the law of God. The elect are not condemned for not subjecting the law of, for not Submitting to the law of God because God has subjected them to the life and righteousness of the gospel. We were not different from the non-elect in respect of our hatred of God. We were doing the same things. The only difference is Christ who was given whilst we were still enemies with God. We hated God. That's Romans 5 teaching. But here is the difference. Here is the distinction. The kind of mind of a person who is not elect will remain under the same sentence of death and condemnation that is attracted by their carnality, Remember that those who are not under condemnation are not so because they walk according to the Spirit, but because they are in Christ, and that Christ fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for them. Their walking is not the cause of their non-condemnation or justification. I have to hammer this home again. Your non-condemnation is not because of your walking, but is because of you being united to Christ and being found in Christ. Because if God would base your non-condemnation on your walking alone, you would be condemned. Verse 8 of Romans 8. So then those who are in, in the flesh cannot please God. Those in the flesh cannot please God because they are faithless. 
Remember, Paul said, the law is not of faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So when one goes back to the law, it is not a sign of faithfulness, but a sign of faithlessness. And that is a fair conclusion given that God devoted time to this matter in the book of Galatians and in the book of Hebrews. Going back to the law is faithlessness. Those who go back to the law for anything are saying Christ is not enough. If you go back to the law for anything, what you're saying is Jesus is not enough. What is it that is lacking in Jesus that you have to go back to Moses to get? That's the question that someone has to answer me. What is it that, that is lacking in Jesus that you have to go and borrow from Moses? God says those who go back to the law, those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God because by the deeds of the flesh shall no sinner, no person, or by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified before him. And I believe that this verse 8 is an ex extended discussion of law versus grace that, call, that Paul just presented in a different way. Paul is not teaching anything new, he is just putting more emphasis to his earlier points by presenting it differently. Verse 8 is saying, those under the law cannot please God. And this is a very consistent teaching and revelation of his gospel. Those under the law cannot please God. Verse 9. But you are not the, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but you, that is in reference to those in his hearing who are believers, and also true for all who believe. They are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Even on their worst day, all who are believers, redeemed of Christ, are in the spirit. Because one is in the spirit because they are in Christ, not because they woke up feeling good about their day. <laughs> And being in Christ, they are not under God's condemnation. They are in the Spirit. If the Spirit of God dwells in them. So the result and evidence of not being under condemnation is that one is indwelled by the Spirit of God. And that is to say, Holy Spirit indwelling is 
this sign that one is not under God's condemnation. It is not that they stopped sinning, but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the sign. And now Paul says, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And that is true. But that statement needs some qualification because of the other surrounding gospel matters. First, all who are not under God's condemnation shall be given the Holy Spirit. Is given. In God's time, they will all get the Holy Spirit. But I do not think at all that Paul meant that all the elect who have not yet come to faith are under condemnation. Because I've seen the argument made by some sovereign grace people that one only belongs to Christ at the time of them receiving the Holy Spirit. And this is my argument. The Holy Spirit is not given to remove condemnation. But that would go against Romans 8 verse 1 but to confirm non-condemnation. Non-condemnation is only because of being in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is given by Christ to indwell later the justified people. Because justification happened when the payment of their sin was done. Not when the Holy Spirit was given. The Holy Spirit is not the agent of justification. He is not the cause. He is not the bringer of justification. Christ is. And I argue again that if the elect remain under God's condemnation for sins that Christ already suffered and paid for, including unbelief, then who pays for their condemnation to be removed later on? And this will take you to the purgatory rod. So there are some unreasonable theological tricks that are being made in this matter, in my hearing of it, because people are so determined to condemn the elect. They are so determined to have some of the elect condemned until they are satisfied that they have faith and they know things according to their satisfaction. And it is coming from conditioning salvation, justification on the sinner or to the giving of faith to a sinner or to some level of knowledge by the sinner and not on Christ and the cross alone. It is also 
a failure to understand the implication of union, of surety and representation. People say, oh, Christ is our surety. Christ represented us, but they do not understand what that means. So they end up creating a useless strawman that an unbeliever could not be justified until they believe. Justified by who and to whose satisfaction? All the elect. You see, this is a matter of union. All the elect. That is the church of Jesus. Was justified and perfected in the one transaction. In the one offering of the one person. Because they were united to him. And all their sins were imputed to him. And that is the only way he could be found guilty. And if he was raised from the dead, it means he had made complete payment and satisfaction, therefore justification. Christ could not be crucified apart from our union with him I don't know if you understand this. Jesus could not be crucified apart from being united with every person that was given him by the Father. We are not united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's not the beginning of our union with Christ. Our union with Christ began with election and it came with the coming of Jesus It came by his dying on the cross. We died with him, buried with him, and resurrected with him, and seated with him. And the Holy Spirit comes, and he consummates that union, being given as a seal, as a deposit, as a guarantee of our salvation. So, all the elect were justified not when they came to the knowledge of Christ. That's a denial of surety and union people. It's a denial, surety, union, and representation, which is substitution, are the bedrock to the matter of imputation. You cannot impute anything to Christ without surety, representation, and union. And therefore, when that is done, the back imputation of righteousness also happens the same way. When the sin, sin debt is paid, is also when the justification happens because that's when the debt was paid. <laughs> Isaiah 53, 11. Isaiah 53, 11. You're going to hear me getting more and more vocal about this matter. Because people are not thinking through what is being said. Isaiah 53 verse 11, God says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. 
God was prophesying, looking to the coming of Christ, particularly to his death, and saying by Jesus' knowledge of obedience, Jesus' knowledge of the terms of the covenant, Jesus' knowledge of the will of God, because he said, I came to do the will of my Father. Jesus' knowledge of righteousness and suffering. God says, my righteous servant, when he comes, will do something. Will justify the many. When my righteous servant comes, he will justify the many. Not that he will make justification possible. But when he shows up, he will justify the many. How? He shall bear their iniquities. Future to the writing, when the righteous servant comes, that's when the imputation of our sin would happen. And when that happens, he will die. And that places the cross as the place of justification because the righteous servant and his justification is tied to his bearing the iniquities. As Zechariah says in Zechariah 3, the iniquities were carried and removed in one day, in one day. So, if we insist that the elect non-believer does not belong to God until they have come to faith, until they have the Holy Spirit, we also go against Jesus' words in John 10, where Jesus said this. Let's go to John 10. John 10, 15 to 16. Jesus said, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, the fold of national Israel, the elect among them. Them also I must bring and they will hear my voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The hearing of the voice of the shepherd is not what causes their justification. It's not what causes them to belong to Christ. And Jesus here, when he talks about the other sheep, he's talking about the Gentiles. And at this time, they did not know anything about Jesus. They were still non-believers, still did not have the Holy Spirit given them. But Jesus said, they are my sheep. And in his prayer in John 17, let's go to John 17, verse 6. We're almost getting done, but I have a lot of arguments to share. <laughs> John 17, verse 6. I've manifested your name to the man whom you gave, whom you gave to me out of the world, or whom you have given me out of the world. 
They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. When Jesus prayed this in John 17, Peter, John, and the rest of the disciples did not have the Holy Spirit in them. (laughs) But Jesus said they belonged to God. They belonged to Jesus before they got the Holy Spirit. And my point being that the statement by Paul from Romans 8 that says, now if anyone does not have the Holy Spirit of Christ, he is not his, needs qualification. Otherwise, one who condemn the elect even after Jesus has justified them. Because I have seen it used to try and justify the condemnation of the elect. Because they just have not shown some ability of the truth of Christ. You don't know. You don't know what they're going to hear the next two weeks. And the condemnation is not going to be lifted from two weeks from now. It doesn't work like that. It was lifted on the cross or it can't be lifted anywhere. Yeah? So my point is, faith, which is coming by the working of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, evidences election and justification. That's my point. It is not a cause of justification. My knowledge of Christ my faith and dependence to Christ is the evidence of election and justification. It is not cause. That's the point. Verse 10, and that is our last verse. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. What does that mean? The elect died with Christ in union with Christ and thus legally they are reckoned by God as having died already because Christ condemned their sin in the flesh by meeting the righteous requirement of the law on their behalf. So sin cannot kill them and the law cannot kill them either. And this is speaking to condemnation. And this is another way to say the same. Sean, can you close it off? The body is dead because of sin. How does the body of the sinner die before they have died? In the gospel sense, what has God taught in the matter of the dying of the sinner, even though physically they haven't died, it is in Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also become dead. 
dead to the law through the body of Christ. Where the law dies, also sin dies also because the two go together. You also have become dead to sin or dead to the law through the body of Christ is giving you the same result. That you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So the language of death is there to emphasize the complete legal separation from something. Is very purposeful. Death is implying a complete separation from law, from sin, and its condemnation. So mixing grace and law is allowing sin and law to remain alive to the sinner to some degree or another in the matter of condemnation also. Because if you're still not completely dead to the law, you're still under some kind of condemnation. If you're not completely dead to sin, then you're still under some kind of condemnation, and we cannot take that. So anyone who claims you are not dead to sin and law is not telling the truth on Christ. But Paul says, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit is life, is alive because of righteousness. All believers, even though they are subjects of death in the flesh because of sin, their spirits are still alive to God because of the Christ who dwells in them and because of his imputed righteousness. And pay attention to this also. The indwelling of the Spirit is also the indwelling of Christ. And it is the indwelling of God. And the Spirit's indwelling is evidence of Christ's possession of the person. And also see the interchange of the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ in that conversation. They are referring to the one and the and same thing, and that arguing for the deity of Christ and also for the Trinity. The Spirit of God becomes the Spirit of Christ, and it is the Spirit that indwells us to mediate the life that we have in Christ. Yeah? So many things have been said here. And we have to close this. But this is how we love to teach. <laughs> we'll never cut messages short just to save time. We don't do that. This is how we love to teach because the devil is in the details. We have to explain the text, however long it takes. But the major points that we can glean from this conversation Number one is that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what sin you're dealing with. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And those who are in Christ are they who are saved 
to walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. And walking in the spirit is not moral righteousness. Because a lot of people misconstrue that and put on that statement things that don't belong to it. Walking in the spirit is not moral righteousness, but a walking of faith in Christ, trusting the righteousness of Christ alone and calling your own righteousness lost and done. And walking under the flesh or in the flesh is to continue to labor under the law and its condemnation and seeking justification from one's own obedience to God. Whether to the law or whatever other kind of obedience you can think of, that is the carnal mind that is walking under the flesh. But Paul said the law is helpless for one who is in Romans 7 experience who always finds evil present with them even when they try to do good. He says the law cannot help you. The law is weak because of the flesh. The law cannot justify a sinner, cannot sanctify a sinner, cannot help anyone in anything. But what the law could not do, God did. So it's already done. Salvation is already done. And this is what God did. He sent his own son, which means Christ pre-existed his being sent. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and that is the incarnation of Christ, that he may feel or fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, its demand of perfection and its case of non-compliance, and to condemn it for that, to condemn sin in the flesh, and in so doing, justify all his people from their sins, save all his people from their sins. Now I'm going to close this way and say, I posted earlier about the passing of Ella's aunt, Aunt Linda, very instrumental figure person in Ella's life. And we always had her at my conferences in Zimbabwe. This is the only one that she was not able to come. But on our last day of the conference, we drove and went and saw her and we talked. And then she was still going through the testing. They didn't know what was going to come up, even though there were some suspicions that it could be cancer. And she said, she calls me Sunny, S-O-N-N-Y. She says, well, I'm ready to go. (laughs) And knowing what I know about the gospel and what she understands for the gospel, of which we are Aware in total agreement, I said, if you have to go, it's time to go. It cannot be stopped. And I think if you have to go, where you're going to go is much better than here. 
And so today the Lord made a close of a chapter. But the story of those in Christ does not end with a burial. It's a story that continues forever and ever because Christ ever lives. So at some point, we're going to go and experience the same. And the testimony is going to remain the same. Christ is Lord. We are complete in him and he has satisfied all the righteous requirements God required of us. And it is well. So be praying for us. Be praying for our larger family. But we should be fine. The Lord will encourage us in every way. All right, good people. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I pray the Lord helped you with understanding. Let us go before him and pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this day. Thank you for the many words that were spoken. And thank you for telling us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because he came and fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for us. It's perfection and it's curse. And he removed it. He condemned sin in the flesh. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful testimony. I pray for all those who heard the message and those who shall hear. May you bless them with understanding. Keep them the days ahead. Keep us in this cold weather. We honor you, glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, good people. We'll see you next week. The Lord willing, we'll be back in Romans and keep working this testimony. Okay? Okay, uh, let's do our closing hymn. Ten.